You may be seated. I'm going to do a little introduction before I actually get to the scripture for this morning. And I'll actually be reading from 1 Peter, uh, the uh, scripture reading this morning. I'm taking a part of that. But first, just kind of going back to uh, Romans chapter uh, 14, uh, verse 13, where we've been looking at last week. And uh, it, Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And in what we uh, hopefully all were able to come to the conclusion of last week was uh, that Paul was really emphasizing here that in non-essentials, and again, I have to remind you, non-essentials, meaning we're not talking about the foundation that Paul laid in the sense of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, those types of issues, but in areas that you know, people have problems with. And one of the areas that they were having problems with, obviously, if you read through from the first verse of, of chapter 14 and on further, is they were having a problem with the idea of, of uh, should we eat meat that might have been sacrificed to idols or not? Now, that would have been an issue not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles that were becoming Christians as well. For the Gentiles, it was the idea of, we know what goes on in those pagan religions. That's what we were part of. And to eat meat that might have been sacrificed that way, could, that could be a really bad thing to do. Uh, and, and so they had a, a personal conscience, if you will, of that, that that would be an affront to God. And of course, Christians, uh, Jewish people that had become Christians, they were having issues in reference to kosher, first off, had it been even prepared properly. And uh, the thing was, that, and I think I mentioned this a couple of times now, but the meat that you would pick up in, in, in Rome or a lot of other uh, areas in the, in the Roman Empire where it was primarily Gentiles, they were the meat would be sacrificed by the the, the pagan partition, you know the worshiper and the pagan priest would take part for himself they would share part and then the rest of it he could take and and sell to the meat market and so this was common practice so when you went to the meat market you didn't know and and the meat the meat the butcher wasn't about to tell you oh well this was he just wants to sell his product so there was confusion over this should we eat meat or not and the reality was and Paul even says it for himself, I'm free to eat. Okay? But some people aren't. How are we going to deal with that? Well, you know, you, you, each person has their choice and they have to be, as Paul put it very clearly, a matter that you bring before God and a clarity of conscience between you and God in the area. If you believe that, that you might be uh, sinning, then you shouldn't eat the meat. But don't condemn those who are free to eat the meat. But those that are eating the meat, by the way, don't condemn those or judge those who don't eat the meat. In other words, this is a non-issue. And what Paul was concerned about in the area of stumbling block here was that you compelled or forced in some way someone to take your side of the issue when they weren't prepared to. In other words, you belittled them or, 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 or made issue with them because they didn't eat meat or because they did, and you were compelling them to do the opposite of what their conscience said. At that point, you're becoming a stumbling block. Now, people have taken this out of context and used it well. And you think about this. Do you know anybody that from a religious purpose is a Christian and doesn't eat meat? I can tell you I do. 
And so the, the, the issue is that he could come to me and, and, and if he wanted to manipulate the Scripture, he could say, well, you'll be a stumbling block to me if you eat meat. No, if I entice him to eat meat, if I put a situation where he is compelled out of maybe hospitality or something like that, that he has to do something that is against his conscience, then I have become a stumbling block to him. But the fact that I eat meat in my own home without you know, not putting him in that position or on that spot, he's now supposed to look at me and give me the freedom to do that. And so this idea of stumbling block is when you entice someone or put someone in a situation where they are compelled to go against their conscience. Now, are you always going to know that? No. I used drinking as an example. Paul brings it up later on. I, a situation for me. I don't drink. Why? Not because I have a biblical issue with it. Well, actually, I probably have to say I do because my tendency is, is an addictive behavior pattern to drink to excess. And so I don't drink because I can't stay within the, the biblical confines of staying sober in the sense of not, you know, not drinking or, or becoming a, uh, indulging to the point of, of drunkenness. So I don't drink at all. Now, if I go out with a friend, and this did happen, who shoot, we went out to shoot some pool in a family pizza hall setting, and they happened to have a pool table, he had a beer. Now, this was, uh, I had just moved. I was going to a new church in a new town. And I said, oh, because I'd come out of a church that said you can't drink, which was exactly what I needed at the time I became a Christian. And I thought, oh, well, they're free to drink. And so I had myself, it had been three years since I'd had anything, so I thought, yeah, I'll be fine. And I had a couple beers, and I realized over a period of time, I got to the point where I looked forward to going to play pool, not because we are going to play pool, but because we were going to have a couple of beers. And at that point, it hit me. It's owning me again. I wasn't getting drunk, but I was causing a problem for me. Now, did my friend, was he a stumbling block at that point? No, he knew nothing about my situation or my problem. But once I told Mark, he no longer put me in a situation where that was a problem. If we went and played pool and had family pizza together and stuff like that, he chose not to have a beer because he knew my situation. See how that works? It's not that, I, that he had to stop or that I had to start to prove my freedom in Christ. It was that we respected each other's conscience before the Lord in their freedom to do what they needed to do before God. And that was what Paul emphasized a couple of times there. You individually need to be right before the Lord as to what you do in these non-essential areas. Playing cards is, you know, I was making a list of things that over the years, you know, it's not meats, holidays, wine uh, was the issues that Paul brought up, but there's also movies, cards, dancing, all sorts of other issues that some Christians participate in and some don't. I even thought about this as I was looking at it, and I can recall a situation that came up for me in Southern California in 1985, and I had a really close friend who uh, joined a Pentecostal church. And this Pentecostal church was very avid in the, and I don't avid, very, very aggressive in the position about everybody needed to be speaking in tongues and praying in tongues. And there was a big question mark in their context if you, didn't, if you didn't speak in tongues, maybe you didn't have the Holy Spirit. Well, in my teaching, 
I've got the Holy Spirit from the moment I entered into a relationship with Christ. And they said, oh yeah, that's true. But now you need the filling of the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said, no, that my understanding was I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Everybody's baptized, indwelt, engulfed by the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and so there became this friction. He said, said, I had to speak in tongues. And it was even a question mark as to whether I was filled with the Holy Spirit or maybe even saved. And from my side of it, it was, I don't need to speak in tongues to be a Christian and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's still my position. Okay, now, how do we come to grips with that? You know, Well, uh, it, it becomes an issue where he's free to, to, to practice that. If that's his conscience and he's in that position, that's fine. But to, to take a non-biblical salvation issue and make it into one is wrong. And some people will do that with dancing. Some people do that with cards. I know I've shared with you the, the guy that was an elder in the church that I started in. He, he handed me a deck of cards that, and, 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 and he said, do you, would you like to have these? And I said, oh, sure, thanks. I put them in my pocket and, and started to walk out. And he says, you play cards? And I said, yeah. And he says, that's not Christian. And he gave me a whole thing. And I thought, well, maybe, man, it must not be. But why haven't you thrown them away or burned them or something if they're that, you know? Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, and it took me a while to come to my own conclusion about that. And I realized when I'm with these people, you know, for, and, I, and I had a good friend who was a good Christian and a professor at the Bible college. He said, uh, he explained, I, I think I shared this one with you, that, that, uh, in that particular group, a number of the people were non-instrumental and they didn't play cards and stuff like that. And they came over to uh, visit a visiting from out of town, came to this guy's house, our, my professor's house, and they happened to have a game of, of, of uh, bridge going, a, a group. And he just, this visitor just went ballistic. And he says, look, I didn't invite you to the game because I know you would never play cards. And I don't want to make a stumbling block for you, but I am free. I'm not enticing you. You see how, I'm, I, how it's working is the idea is if I'm forcing somebody, if I'm enticing somebody to do something that's against their conscience, that's when I'm the stumbling block. And we're supposed to, both of us, be able from both sides to look at this and not become legalistic about it one way or the other and without condemning and without judging. So... I, that idea of stumbling block is, is important to grasp. And so I just you know, put it, if a person holds some areas of conscience as sin to them, those who don't are not to tempt or entice them to turn away. And those acting on conscience out of conscience are not to judge or condemn those who do participate or eat or, or drink or however the issue is. Being a stumbling block in this way where I entice them, that is sin. However, being a stumbling block is not a sin universally. Let me explain by going back to 1 Peter. In chapter 2, in a beautiful passage where Peter's talking about we're part of the temple of God, we're the living stones built on the foundation laid by God and the cornerstone and all of that issue... Peter writes in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. A quote from Isaiah chapter 28. And what a beautiful verse that is. Those whoever believes in this precious stone that I am laying as a cornerstone, God is laying the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. In other words, once we rest in Christ, we'll never be uh, embarrassed that this is what we've done. And He will keep all of His promises. We'll never come up short. We'll never be put to shame in this in any way. We can claim these promises, and no matter what anybody else has said, we can stand proud in Christ. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. In a world that condemns so much of, of Christianity... We can stand proud. No embarrassment whatsoever because of who Christ is and who we know Him to be. And, and so, uh, he goes on, So the honor is for you who believe. But those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, in other words, the builders are, are uh, those who, who knew, were expecting Christ, expecting the Messiah, but rejected Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So even though they reject it, it has nothing to do with it. God has laid His cornerstone. You know, some people say, well, I don't agree with that. It doesn't make any difference. I refuse that. It doesn't make any difference. I reject it in every way. It doesn't make any difference. It is done. And, and that was a quote from Psalm 118, and then a quote from Isaiah 8. is the last one here, verse 8. A stone of stumbling, you know, the, the, has become the, this this stone that's been rejected is the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a stumbling block, and a rock of offense. To whom? To everyone who doesn't believe. Okay, keep this in mind as we go through this. Paul uses this same passage of, of, of uh, or the same idea of thought, if you will, in 1 Corinthians. And uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, he's writing in the sense of, of, of God, talking about God's wisdom and power here. And he starts out verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, the, the, that's the way the world thinks is going to come to an end. It's going to be put short. And so he, God challenges. Where is the one who is wise in the world? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? The one who is wise referring to the Gentiles, the scribe referring to the Jews. Where is the one who is the debater of this age? And it's interesting. Both the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, they, they like to stand at the gate and debate, even in almost to a senseless kind of point of no possible way of resolving they, that was their, their glory at times, was to stand there and debate over the, the Word of God. And, and the, the Gentiles loved to debate over philosophy and these types of things as well. 
And so he says, where's your wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? In other words, come challenge me if you want. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The, the, the point that I'm trying to get out here is, is that everything the world would hold as the right way to look at everything, God says, put it before me and, 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 and it won't stand. Even though the world's going to look at Jesus Christ crucified as foolish and to the, to the, to the Jews even a stumbling block. Why is the cross so offensive? It's a stumbling block to so many. And this is the reason why I wanted to make sure you understand. Christ is a stumbling block. And that's not, obviously it can't be sin when he's the stumbling block. So we, we can't take that issue that you know, every, every stumbling block in, in, is, is a sin. There's times where we, if you're preaching the gospel, you may, become, you may be presenting the stumbling block to somebody. In fact, that was any time that the gospel was preached to me as a non-believer coming at it from my point of view, I thought it was foolishness. It, was, it became a stumbling block to me. I couldn't figure out why anybody would believe in a resurrection, of, first off, and then to accept this as the only Word of God and the only way of salvation through Jesus Christ? How narrow-minded. Why is the cross, the crucifixion, such a, and, and what surrounds it such a stumbling block? And, and I, was, I was looking at this and thinking, how am I going to explain this? And, and fortunately, there's just, there, was, there was a tremendous amount of information on the positive side of this, but not too much information on the negative side. But you need to see it from the, the negative side for a moment. Because in the age of the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a Roman tool of punishment and control in the sense of fear. And it was reserved for the worst of the criminals, the worst offenders, outlaws, committing the worst kinds of crimes, and for political prisoners that they wanted to make an issue out of. And that was so that, you know, so people would have that intimidation. Don't mess with the Romans, <laughs> you know. And so it was a heinous form of, of, of death. And I think you all know that. It's preaching to the choir here right now. You all understand the ugliness of a crucifixion. And so even the Roman world, the Gentiles... The cross was an offense. They looked at it as reserved for the worst kinds of criminals. So anybody that would be crucified would be something to be rejected, not 
embraced. And like I said, the Romans used the cross to remind the people that they had conquered you know, in parts of the empire, most of their empire, who was in control. With the exception that, and I have to say generally, Roman citizens were excluded. Because a Roman citizen was, a, you know, like Paul was a Roman citizen. They, they could not crucify him technically, which is an interesting thing. In his crucifixion, uh, or, or Paul was beheaded, I mean, you know, because they would have, I think, loved to have crucified him, <laughs> but he was a Roman citizen. So, Romans, Gentiles as a whole, they saw the, the cross as an offensive, ugly thing, and, and anybody that was crucified would be shunned in the sense of memory. And, you know, nothing to do with it. Jews saw the same thing and more. They despised the Romans and their use of the cross, but they also uh, you know, add to it the Roman authority that held control over them that they despised as well. It got to the point where the first century B.C., if the Jewish population, the Sanhedrin, wanted to execute somebody, they couldn't do it. They had to turn it over to Rome. And so they were resenting the whole process of that. But even more, by the way, you could get that out of, out of, out of John chapter 18, uh, verse 31. It says, Pilate said, Take him, uh, referring to Jesus yourselves, and judge him by your own law. In other words, he's, he's not worthy of coming to my court of law for what Jesus had done. And the Jews said to Pilate, it is not lawful us to put, put, put anyone to death. In other words, they had it in their mind. Jesus needed to be put to death. They couldn't do it. So they pushed it back on Pilate. You know, he tried to get out from underneath it, sent it to Herod, whatever he could do to get out from underneath it. Finally, he yielded uh, and said, okay, crucify him. I wash my hands. The blood's on you. The Jews were bringing Jesus to Pilate for judgment. You know, and they wanted his death. And, and so that's why they went to him is because they couldn't do it. But in addition to that, in other words, the ugliness of it the, they, they, and, and, and all of that, there's a verse out of Deuteronomy that says that anyone that is hung on the tree is cursed by God. That was an added dimension to somebody who was executed. After they were stoned, their hands would be tied. They'd be hung on a cross pole. And that was a sign that this person was, in addition to their judgment and death, were cursed by God. And then they were taken down and, and buried. Deuteronomy chapter 21 talks about this. Hanged, a man hanged on a, on a tree is cursed by God. Galatians 3.15 says, uh, well, let's, let's read it. Galatians 3.15. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was cursed for us. 
It was hung on a tree. Well, to a Jew, that's immediate offense. Someone who was crucified. Do you see why, by the way, the Jewish Sanhedrin wanted Jesus crucified then? They wanted Him to be shunned for anything by being hung on the tree. Oh, He's cursed by God. Therefore, for any Jew to look at Him, it was hard. It became a stumbling block for them. How do I, you know, you can't worship a guy hung on a tree. He's cursed. They didn't understand that that had to happen in order for salvation to come. But anyway, that's the idea is, is that Jesus is a stumbling block. The cross is a stumbling block to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And here's kind of the history of it. So you have Jewish, you have Gentiles and Jewish people actually in agreement on the crucifixion. It's, it's folly. It's, it's a stumbling block. It's something that, that, that we can't accept. And therefore, a man executed on a cross was a social reject for the Jews and the Gentiles. How could you possibly then call him a Messiah and, and the Son of God if he's been hung on a tree? And so Paul is very blunt about it. It is a stumbling block, but it was necessary. And Paul never hesitated to preach the truth about it. And so you have Peter and Paul and the Gospels all speaking of Jesus, the foundation, the cornerstone, beginning, if you will, with the cross and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A man hung on the tree. And it certainly was not what the Gentiles or the Jews would be looking for as a basis of worship, as a belief system that could take the place of anything that was already existing. They would just look at it and say, how could this be? It's impossible. And, and in a sense, uh, it was almost like an oxymoron for the Jew <laughs> to call him Messiah and hung on a tree simultaneously. just didn't make sense. You know, if this was a fabricated religion, Paul and Peter and the apostles, they never would have gone this route with it because it, was, it, was, it excluded everybody almost that they came into contact with on a, uh, on a first presentation basis, if you will. Oh, our, our, our man of worship, the Son of God, who lives again, was hung on a tree. Oh, how could that be? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 22, the Jews demand signs. By the way, the signs they demanded were ones that met their own criteria, like excluding the, you know, kicking the Romans out of of, of Judea and, and the Jews reclaiming their empire and all of these things, which wasn't to happen the way that they were looking at it. And in fact, one group of Jews actually believed from one of the Psalms. If, if the Messiah, when the Messiah came, he would appear by jumping off of the, the, the highest precipice of the, of the temple into the courtyard, and the angels would buffer his, his feet as they touched the ground. By the way, think about it. Who tempted Jesus to do exactly that? Satan. He won't tempt you to do something like that. He was telling Jesus, you want to bypass the cross? 
All you have to do is do this. Just do this. And everybody will receive you as Messiah because they'll say, oh, that group was right. Look at what happened. And you'll have it. Or why don't you just take all the kingdoms? I'll give them to you. And they're yours now. Bypass the cross. What little Satan understood, I think he got it, was the cross was the way to salvation and was what was actually going to open the door. What should have been an offense to man was actually going to open the door to the kingdom of God. The gents were seeking wisdom. Again, it met their criteria. Paul ends up saying, I'm, I preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. Didn't meet their criteria. And so I was looking at, that was at the time of, of, of the first century. What would be the stumbling blocks today? Because we have to be aware of them and not be afraid to stand right even if we cause a culture that looks at it differently. And some will say, well, we don't, want to, we don't want to push anybody away from Christ, so we won't talk about that part of it. We're not at liberty to do that. And I think that's what Paul was trying to say. We're not at liberty to, 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 to reduce this story, this picture, this, this uh, gospel message. Here it is, presented as it is. And I was thinking, what would be a stumbling block? Well, for some today, the cross is still a stumbling block. Just the generality. But you know, I don't know that it's as much a stumbling block as it might have been then. Maybe because we're so far removed from it that you know, we, we can't grasp it that way. But uh, you know, it certainly wasn't what was holding me back. I actually believed that Jesus was crucified. And the fact that I know that so many political prisoners and, and other people were crucified in order to cause them to be shunned, I look at it and say, you know... That's no really, they didn't accomplish that. You know, and, and knowing that, you know, the cross isn't a major stumbling block when I figure that part out. Lots of people who shouldn't have been on the cross were crucified. And so I don't see it that same way. I'll tell you what the stumbling block for me was, and I've shared many times, it was the resurrection. Especially when you put the word bodily in front of it. A physical bodily resurrection. I could not for the life of me figure out, literally for the life of me, I could not figure out why anybody would believe that. It just didn't, it was outside of my, the realm of logic. And, and everything I know about something dies, it stays dead. If it comes back to life, it comes back to life because it wasn't dead. Now, you can get the operating table situations and stuff like that, but those are situations where life and death is, is hanging like this over it. But this was three days in the tomb, you know. No. By the way, I believe that Jesus was crucified. I believe he was a teacher, and I believe that he taught good things. And I, and, and, but I don't think at the point that I was looking at it, if the tomb was empty, it, was, it, was, it wasn't because he was physically resurrected, but there was something else that happened. I'd almost have gone with Matthew. The guards lied about it. The guards said, oh, the body was stolen. Uh, that worked for me. When I was uh, a teenager, the, the Passover plot came out, the book called The Passover Plot. And it was all about Jesus swooning on the cross and looked like he was dead, but was really alive. And he came back, and, the, and, and it was, he had been drugged, actually. 
And the whole plan was to make it appear as if he had been resurrected. And it was a scam. I thought that was possible. That, you know, if he's a good teacher, that didn't fit too well. But, you know, I, I, anything but the resurrection. When you got to this, there was just no way I was going to accept. And I was along with everybody just about that I knew in college. No way that you were going to accept this if it was the Word of God as the only Word of God. So the Bible becomes a stumbling block when I, when I tell you this is the Word of God and the only Word of God. And you say, no, there's got to be others. This becomes a stumbling block. Christ alone. Not just the Word alone, but you go to Christ alone. This was a big issue, by the way, at the point in time of the Reformation, beginning of the Reformation. Christ alone, the Word alone. You know, Christ alone, no other way to salvation. In fact, even your works aren't going to count. Christ alone, no other way in heaven, no other name to be saved under heaven. How can that be? It can't be just Christ alone. Look at all the other good people in some of these other religions. Now you're looking at it, I'm telling you, I'm looking at it from a non-Christian point of view. I wasn't looking at it from this side, I was looking at it from the other side. How, look at all these other good people, because my definition of good was not a biblical definition. It was a worldly definition. Good meant, oh, you're a nice guy. You do good things. Even though you've done some bad things, you do some good things. Because you're a religious guy. And I knew lots of different religious people, and especially when I got into college. Because there was people from all, literally all over the world at the school at Cal Poly for ag science and management. People don't realize how, how much many foreign students are part of that, that, that school. And you met, I met Muslims, I met uh, Hindus, I, I met people, you know, I, I, I actually met a guy from, from India that it turns out we ended up connected later on after we became Christians. He was actually a Christian. And I couldn't figure out why he was so exclusive of all the Hindus. And we got connected again after I was in Bible college in San Jose. <laughs> it was amazing that I, I you know, that how God does those things. But anyway, the miracles, the absoluteness of the miracles of the Bible. Jesus walked on water. Sandbar. Calm the storm. Those winds blow off the, the mountains there. They come and go. Just like that. Winds, going, the wind stopped. Of course, I didn't get into the fact that the water stopped. I just, you know, Moses parted the, sort of the Red Sea. Uh, it's one of those times where the wind blows and there's low tide and they went across. I, got, I had all the, you know, figured out all those answers. You know, so miracles. I, you know, to believe in them was a stumbling block to me to approach the throne of God. Virgin birth? <laughs> you see how easy it is to start to realize a number of things that if, if we want to, to try to preach the gospel without it being a stumbling block, we have to almost pull everything away from it. And we're doing a disservice to the kingdom of God when we try to preach the gospel 
without the fullness of what it is. In fact, Paul basically says the death, burial, and resurrection is the cornerstone of this. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. In fact, we would be a very sad people because we're going to die in our sins. If we, you know, if that's, you know, in other words, without Christ, if we die in our sins, the reality is we've bought into something that just is giving us pie in the sky and nothing else without the resurrection. Well, there's no resurrection without what? The cross. And we never need to be ashamed of believing this. This is what God has given us for our salvation. This is the way he has chosen to do it. And the world's going to look at it and say, that's ridiculous, that's exclusive, that's foolishness. And God says, yeah, that's what you would think because you're basing it on everything outside of me. You look at nature and can't even see me. All of this to to come to the point now, all of a sudden, God opens my eyes, removes the stumbling blocks, in a sense, one by one. I have shared many times, but just in a nutshell, I was approached and challenged to read the Gospel of John as if John believed what he was writing. He could have been, the guy says, you may come to the conclusion that John was off his rocker, but read it with the understanding that he might, is it possible that John believed? That was the first time I'd ever been challenged to look at it that way. Nobody ever said, you know, read it and see what you think. They just said, this is the word of, you know, everybody that ever approached me, you know. And so I read it, and that, that what came to was, man, this guy is passionate. I read it in one sitting. First off, I've challenged you guys to do that. Read the Gospels, all four of them. It's not as long a story as you think about it when you look at the number of pages. Read all four Gospel accounts in one sitting. It's an amazing experience. And it doesn't take that long. You'll, you, you'll watch a movie in one sitting. It won't take any longer than that. And I realize these guys are passionate. I don't understand how they came to this conclusion, but they're passionate. And it opened up my eyes to the point of saying, I've got to figure out how come they would believe this. That's how passionate I could see in their writing. That was God opening my eyes. This was the thing I needed. And boom, it was off on the, on the trail to find Christ and what it meant. But I've realized that I want to add this one other thing. Is it possible to be a Christian and still have stumbling blocks in the sense of what God's truth is? I'm going to share with you one of my stumbling blocks. I, I stumble over it in, in ways that I never did before. I am, I first off, to clarify, I absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God. You've heard me preach. I have no doubt in my mind before the foundation of the world, God wrote a symphony about his son and is working it out. Okay? I believe that with all my heart. But I still have situations that come up in my life and I wrote it down this way so I would say it just the way I thought about it the other day. You know, uh, you know, why must this thing happen for God's plan to be completed? Now, I've wrestled with this this week because it's the 15th anniversary of my son's death. And I, you know, I don't, 
and people say, well, you know, you should be over it by now. I will never be over it. I'm, I, I grieve differently than I did at that point in time, but I'll always miss him. And I miss him every day. But the, the reality is, is that I still haven't figured out how that fits into God's plan. With absolute confidence, the night that he died, through prayer and, and, and walking around my house talking with God, <laughs> uh, you know, asking questions, I came to the conclusion that I could rest in him completely, but I still don't understand. And there are things that come up periodically that I just, I, I, for lack of better words, I stumble over. I just, I don't get it. It's not stumbling like the, the Gentiles and the Jews stumble over the cross now. It's stumbling over just resting in the grace that God has provided. Isn't that amazing that something is so awesome as His grace, I periodically stumble over it trying to rest in it because I'm trying to always in my, and I have to confess, even with my Jewish blood, I am a Gentile and I think in compartments. I'm always trying to figure it out. It's very hard for me just to say, oh, that's just the way it is. But I realize that some of the things in the Scripture is just the way it is. I will never understand because he's so far above me in his reasoning and his understanding. I am still fixed in a fallen body and a fallen way of thinking. And all the stupid training that I had in this world that, that prepared me to challenge, to ask questions constantly. And, and so I'll always be in the midst of some stumbling and some growing and some getting ahead of it and then resting again. Does that make sense? I, you know, I, and, and so... This, I, I guess what I wanted to make sure after preaching so strongly against stumbling block being a sin and causing it, that you understood there's another side to stumbling block. It wasn't my intent that this is one of my rabbit trails. I, I wasn't, it wasn't part of my planned sequence of preaching, but I felt I needed to do this today to make sure that you understand there's times where we stumble, but not in the same way the world stumbles outside of Christ, but sometimes just trying to learn how to rest in Him. It takes time. It takes experience. And sometimes it takes tribulation. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. We went through that very thoroughly. And that was is that through our trials and tribulations, we learn how to rest in Christ. It builds our hope, builds our strength. Because a lot of times we come to that conclusion, I don't understand it, but you are sovereign. I will rest there. But in the meantime, I don't understand why I have to pay, and this is what I talked about last night, why I have to pay if I want full coverage on Medicare why I'm going to have to pay $335 a month to get it. I thought Medicare was supposed to be, boom, I finally got medical care without having to worry about the finances. They're going to take $105 out when I get Social Security. I can't even collect it at this point because I'll get ripped off. Uh, you know, but they're going to take $105 automatically out of my Social Security before I ever see it to pay for Medicare, which we've been paying for forever. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So I might find myself stumbling over things the world throws at me and, and still trying to rest with the sovereignty of God in the midst of that and with the assurance and confidence that in the midst of that, God will get me through it, even if I can't see how. I don't use stumbling block normally when I come to this now. Normally you're going to hear me say, I've been wrestling with something, but that's the same thing. Okay. Now, in this area of the resurrection, I have to say, this is probably one of the major stumbling blocks 
even within the Christian movement, is to exactly what happened there. Meaning that there are a number of groups that were the name Christian who have other, other explanations than the bodily resurrection, a supernatural event. I have shared with you one that the pastor of a church that was here in town, he, lived, he was here in the, in the early 80s, um, he says he wanted to know why Grace Chapel was growing. And, and I said, well, we just preached the gospel. He said, no, what's your program? Yeah, and we just preached the gospel. The, we got a, a guy who's the, 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 the senior pastor, and he said, yeah, Jerry. And I said, yeah, he's an evangelist, and I'm a teacher. Together we make a team, and, you know, it's just what happens. You know, and he says, he says, yeah, but, 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 you know, what's the program? <laughs> and he says, so you preach the word of God just pure and simple. It's true. And I said, yeah, right down to the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection. He says, you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? This is a pastor now in a church wearing the name Christian here in the community. You, you believe in the bodily resurrection? He says, that's not what happened. The teachings of Christ were resurrected. We can even use the word resurrection and be off, off base <laughs> with each other. Until we had said that, I, I shared an Easter Sunday pass, uh, um, um, uh, sunrise service with him. <laughs> not again. You know, because at that point, it's no longer non-essentials. <laughs> now we're talking about essentials. And there's a point where you do draw the line. And I actually became a stumbling block to him in the sense that he just couldn't figure out why. I, he was surprised that I believed in, uh, that I was pro-life too, though. So, uh, you know, he just came in and, and, and probably wore the name Christian and pastor. And I, I asked him bluntly, I said, what do you preach on Sunday mornings? And he says, well, just, the, you know, we're to do this good stuff and, and go out and, 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 you know, help people and, The resurrection is still an issue is what I was trying to get at. But go back to Acts chapter 17 and look at Mars Hill. It's an interesting story when you read through it. I'm not going to do it this morning, but just, just the idea of, of reading what happened in Athens at Mars Hill, which was the, the Gentiles gathered together to do what? Talk about and debate everything. And they debated everything. In fact, on the way up are all the, all the gods that they knew about. There was some kind of altar or... Or, or statue or something. And just to cover their bases, you know the story, but just to cover their bases, they had what? The altar to the what? Unknown God. Paul says, that's the one I want to talk to you about. <laughs> it's the one you don't know that counts. And, he start, and they said, hey, yeah, come and speak to us. In fact, they invited him to come speak. They said, hey, something new to talk about here. And debate. And they got it. when he got to the resurrection, it stopped. And they said, and it said most of them just said, no, we don't want to talk to you anymore. Goodbye. And a few of them said, we'll call you when we want to talk again. But said, no, don't call us, we'll call you. And a few, very few, believed. Paul knew when he was up there that it was, resurrection was going to be a problem for him. Just as Jesus knew when he preached resurrection and, a, and, a, and an afterlife to the Sadducees, which was a progressive group of, of, of Jews that didn't believe in the supernatural and didn't believe in the resurrection. We have a certain aspect of who we are that we stand on absolutely. 
And the neat thing about it is it drives us right into communion because communion is a perfect picture. Every single Sunday, we celebrate the stumbling block to the world, to the Jews and to the Greeks, if you will, to the Gentiles, because this is the foundation of who we are. And we cannot back away from it in our preaching, in our teaching, at any point. The Son of God emptied himself and entered this world physically, bodily, and became a man. He lived a sinless life. At 30, he began to preach the message of the kingdom of God. And towards the end of that, the reality that to get into the kingdom of God would be through him and him alone. Even to the point where he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Everybody was surprised that it took his death to accomplish it. But when filled with the Holy Spirit of the day of Pentecost, it, you know, they began to understand it. Even in his ascension, they didn't still quite get it. The day that he ascended, the day he told them, go back into Jerusalem and pray until the Holy Spirit comes, even at that point, they said, are we going to do this Rome thing now and kick him out? Read it in chapter, Acts chapter 1. Are we going to go down and do it? And he says, no. Just go back and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit and it will come together for you. And you'll get it. And things that you didn't understand will become clear. In fact, it's interesting when you read the Gospel of John and say, we didn't know it then, but this is what we know now. <laughs> and, and now we understood. And he'll, he'll put a little, you know, you know, thought along the way through the Gospel of John. Paul says, without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. And so every time we come to communion, we rest with that absolute confidence. The sovereign God of all creation, before the foundation of the world, put together a plan of salvation that would include the physical appearing of his son in a human body, taking, uh, undoing, if you will, what Adam did in his sin, and opening the door to salvation, and it would be through the cross. And so Paul says, I proudly preach Christ crucified and risen again. Ask the ushers to come forward. And uh, if you would, uh, take the, the communion together and, and hold it until we've all been served and we'll share it together.
He made no qualms about it as he described even the act of, of sharing in communion. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. you do this in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to say, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning we, just in agreement, we stand and we proclaim Your Word, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We rest with confidence that because of what He's done through the cross, foolishness to the Gentiles, stumbling block to the Jews, because of what He has done through the cross and His resurrection, we now can see the kingdom of God because You've opened our eyes to it and invited us in. Thank you. We thank you for the grace you've poured out on us. Lord, we know that day to day we still fall short. And so we have to, to be reminded, Lord, through your Holy Spirit as you convict us to bring our sins before you, but with the full confidence that even as we miss the mark, as we bring it before you, you turn around and say, you will forgive us, and you tell us to rest with confidence in that, that you will forgive us and, and restore us to all righteousness as if we had not sinned at all. And just to confirm it there, and you, you tell us uh, further on that you 
are our lawyer before the throne of God. You are our mediator before the throne of God. <laughs> Basically, what it's telling us is we can't lose. We rest in you, Christ. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy, your love, your grace. In Jesus' name.